Hallelujah. Lord, on this your day, we celebrate your resurrection. Jesus, we thank you that when you rose from the grave, the assurance of our salvation was sealed with the evident fact that the, uh, that the consequences of sin and the wages of sin, which were death, could not keep you bound. This is because you were the perfect sacrifice. And though you took on our sin, you were perfect. And when you died, you did so in our place, becoming sin for us, that we who are sinful might have a perfect substitute who took on the wrath of God and stood in our place, was crucified in our stead, and then rose again. As we celebrate the resurrection of Christ our Lord this day, I pray that the words that you have recorded through the pages of your scripture would move us to faith and would further strengthen the foundations of our confession that we might stand. Teach us, Lord, to look to your word and to look to your works through history. The one who has overcome the grave, can he not carry us through this life? Yes, and indeed you can. Thank you, Father, that in giving victory to your son over sin, death, and the grave, and thank you in his ascension before the Father, we have proof positive that every enemy in our own lives and every enemy of your kingdom will one day eventually be defeated. Now, as we turn to your word in Galatians, which provides necessary instruction for us, your church, I pray that these words would be meaningful and helpful for us and that they would direct us, Lord, to the means of grace whereby we can stand and we can be faithful and we can confess the truth and that we can grow in our understanding of the same and be faithful to the teaching of the once for all faith delivered to the saints, the gospel of salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn once again to the book of Galatians. I was looking over my notes in Galatians and this is the 13th sermon in this book. And for now, it will wrap up our series. We've completed the territory of Galatians, averaging two sermons per chapter, covering the six chapters in 12 messages over the course of just about a year, once a month. And today, as is my common practice after finishing a book, I like to do an overview message that hopefully summarizes the teaching and emphasizes the main points for us to take forward from the epistle to the Galatian church that are available for us to reinforce us as his church today. The aim of my message today is to summarize the message and motives of the book of Galatians. Quite simple, to summarize the reason Paul writes and the message that he proclaims in the book of Galatians. A passage of scripture that is helpful to summarize Galatians, comes at the close of Paul's own words. Turn with me in your scriptures, if you would, to Galatians 6, 11 through 16. That will be our jumping off text this morning. And from there, we will go many places as this is an overview message within the book. The title of this morning's message is even more simple than the aim. It's simply Galatians Overview, an overview of the book of Galatians. So would you stand with me again out of reverence for God's word? with your Bible open to Galatians 6, 11 through 16, and listen as these words of summary are proclaimed in your ears today from the apostle to the church of Galatia, yes, but to us as well, the church indeed of all ages. Galatians 6, 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be unto them and upon the Israel of God. Let's read the last two verses. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As Paul brings his letter to a close, his final words contain within them a structure summary of the letter. Here in Galatians 6, 11 through 16, is Paul himself summarizing, may I suggest, the body of his epistle to the Galatian church. He refutes the scripture-twisting false teachers, describing their efforts as that which only promotes, quote, a good showing in the flesh. False teaching, false so-called gospels, they don't promote the glory of God. Instead, they promote what he calls a good showing in the flesh. That is, a good presentation, a self-serving, an impressive display to the human eye, but one that reeks of filthy rags of works-based righteousness and robbing from God's glory from the perspective of heaven. Now, this was for a reason The false teachers did this, among other things, in order to avoid the persecution cost associated with the truth of Christ's teaching. They also did this, as we mentioned, to glorify themselves in the process. In closing, the apostle is offering one last refutation. Refutation means to prove something in error, to destroy its credibility. He is offering one last refutation of the corrupt teaching that had infected the church in Galatia. He goes further to reject the heresies of the day by elevating the superior quality and value of the only true message that saves. This, of course, is the gospel. There is no other one, he says. As if in the beginning of Galatians, he says, they bring to you another gospel, as if there was another one, meaning a gospel claim that is not based on the teaching of the apostles, that is not verified on the foundations of the whole council, the Word of God, is gospel in name only. It is good news in name only. It is, in fact, substantially, foundationally, no good news, no gospel at all. No, just a Bible-twisting, a corrupt, repugnant heresy. Paul refuses to boast in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. He says as much in our text today, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We can gather from this that to boast in Christ is to reject any claim to the contrary. If we have all our investment in the power of the cross, grace alone in Christ, by faith in Christ's work alone, which saves, then we reject 
any other means or any other teaching, any other grounds of boasting. The cross of Jesus Christ, Paul proclaims, is the sole source of identity and assurance. He describes the believer's orientation as a new creation, diametrically opposed to the popular notions of the world around him. Paul asserts the truth in the starkest of contrasts. He is dead to the world. That is to say, he is dead to his old life. He's dead to a sinful worldview. He is dead to self-serving ambitions, but he is alive in Christ. He is a new creation. Finally, he declares a benediction, praying that mercy and peace would attend those who walk by this rule. That is the rule of the gospel or the rule of the spirit. That is, those whose lives are reformed to apply the truth of the gospel, meaning what does it mean to walk by the rule of the spirit or the gospel? It means that those whose hearts have been changed have lives who are reformed to apply the truth of the gospel of Christ in their daily decisions, relationships, and pursuits. This relates, of course, in Galatians 5 and on into 6, to the fruit of the Spirit and its, or fruits of the Spirit and their application. He refers to those that will heed the rebuke of this letter and resonate with the message of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. He refers to them as the authentic, quote, Israel of God. He is speaking, those who have ears to hear his message of gospel correction are, even today, the Israel of God. That is, those who truly identify as the covenant people of the Messiah, these are his family, his brothers, the enduring church, who will hear the voice of the good shepherd, shepherd calling his sheep away from the cliffs of legalistic apostasy unto green pastures of spirit-shared life through the ministry uh, that, has been, or that has been taught through the ministry of the apostles. And I pray that we would hear that voice loud and clear. So in summary, these three points of emphasis, Paul gives us in closing, condemnation of false teaching, pro, uh, proclaiming the gospel truth, and encouraging fruit, fruitful application. Con- condemnation of false teaching, proclaiming gospel truth, encouraging fruitful application by the Spirit. Now, these three ideas, we'll restate them a little for our headings today, but they provide column headings under which the entire letter can be classified. That's my thesis by way of Galatian overview this morning. Paul's letter to the Galatian categorically features, so that means it displays three categories, or you could say all of his teaching can be organized under three headings. Number one, refutations of man's gospel. That is destroying, showing, discrediting, false claims and false teaching. That's category one. Secondly, Galatians categorically features assertions of the gospel of Christ. Paul states the gospel in no uncertain terms multiple times in the book, four that we'll touch on briefly today. And thirdly, exhortations to walk by the Spirit. These are the three main views or the three main ideas in the book of Galatians, refuting the gospel of man asserting the, or proclaiming, you could say, the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, exhorting to walk by the Spirit. That is a Galatian overview in three phrases. Now, to establish this, let us touch upon some uh, references from the book as we jump to and fro within these pages and expound our points this morning just a little bit. Once again, Paul's letter to the Galatians categorically features 
refutations of man's gospel. Turn with me to Galatians 1. First of all, where do I get the term man's gospel? This comes from the first chapter. Paul says in Galatians 1, 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What is it, you might ask? Verse 7 answers that question. Not that there is another one. I could back up to 6 for a little more context. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Here's a quote we referenced in introduction. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So here we have two things set in antithesis. This juxtaposition by contrast. Two warring ideas. On one, the gospel of Christ. On the other side, man's gospel. So Paul is going to thoroughly, unequivocally, and with no more questions worthy of asking, refute, destroy, undermine, discredit man's gospel. He does so right out of the box in these verses that we're reading here. He goes on in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul is raising the stakes, is he not? As to the virtue, the value, and the indisputable ground of the truth of the gospel claims of Christ alone, justification by faith, and the work of Christ alone as means and ground of our salvation. He says that if that is altered in any fundamental sense, if the foundations of such a thing are to be adjusted in the teaching of anyone who tickles the ears of the church, then or now, they are to be accursed. It doesn't matter if they're an angel. Many of these individuals, we understand, were really gifted in the art of persuasion. They were captivating teachers. They had a real wit and skill about them. Perhaps they scored off the charts on the IQ scale. Perhaps they were highly respected. Maybe they were well-regarded in their communities. Maybe they were men of importance and significance, of influence and renown in these pagan cities. But if they took all those opportunities, invested all those natural giftings into teaching something that would lead the people astray, then all of that was wasted, is wasted collateral. In fact, they should be accursed. You should not think well of them because of their ability to speak, but indeed you should put them into the accursed category if they stray in any fundamental way from the gospel of Christ. He says, verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, for emphasis, twice, he calls for the condemnation, the damnation. He calls for a curse to fall upon those who would alter the gospel in such a way as was witnessed at the time. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking, he asked by way of rhetorical question, verse 10, the approval of man or of God? Young people, could you answer that question for me? When we preach the gospel, who sh- whose approval should we seek? Man's or God's? That's correct. We should preach in such a way that God is pleased with our message. What if the world hates us? What if the world rejects us? What if the world kills us? If that moves us to alter in any fundamental way the word of God, we are to be accursed. We, in fact, deserve to be killed in a sense if we are to change one iota God's word in this regard. And so the stakes are high. Are we trying to please man? Are we trying to please God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
In examples like this, where Paul refutes man's gospel, each example, you can see them in your notes, this we've just read from is 1, 6 through 11. The second one is 3, 1 through 6, and also verses 10 and 12. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. In each of these examples of direct, pointed refutation, Paul picking a fight <coughs> with false teaching, <coughs> they all uh, contain bold expressions of disapproval. This is a little unique in Scripture. But why are these expressions of disapproval here? Well, it's to heighten our understanding to the importance of what is written. It's to indicate the urgent tone of the letter. This is what is communicated, especially in the original language, when Paul says in 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. This astonishment, this concern, this exasperation, yes, this righteous indignation, this anger that Paul communicates, one might ask, is this a cause worthy of being exercised about? We get our emotions and our anger up and our outrage. Uh, outrage culture is practically an industry these days. People get mad about so many different things. But in our sin especially and in our misguided affections often, our rage, our anger, our indignation is misdirected. Usually we get mad because we see something, we seek the approval of man or the approval of ourselves. And when something threatens the approval of ourselves, that raises our hackles, especially culturally, anything that denies our rights or anything that we see as oppressive or anything that we see as a hierarchy authority over us. Our culture has taught themselves to exercise indignation against it. So no one is immune to astonishment. But the question is, what should we really be outraged at? What are the things that are worthy of our ire? Are our affections accountable to the priorities and to the uh, things that God has declared are important? Paul teaches us this. He teaches us to get angry at the right things. Notice in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have another example. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he declares the disposition of this church to be led astray by false teaching as foolishness. He calls them out. He says, foolish Galatians, morons, translated in the Greek, fools, those who are uh, stupid, who have left all sound reasoning aside and have embraced a, a ridiculous claim. So walking away from the gospel is worthy of expressions of, disrepro of disreproval, such as an astonishment that they've so quickly deserted, uh, calling them out as fools to let these fast-talking uh, false teachers bewitch them. He says again in 4.9, in similar language, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be uh, once more? Again, we hear this exasperation, how foolish it is to submit uh, as a slave back again to the old life that was your undoing and signaled death and hell uh, in your future rather than hanging on to the true gospel. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul says, 
depending on, or based upon your affirmation of the gospel or non-affirmation of the gospel, you're either my friend or my enemy. If you follow this new so-called gospel delivered to you by these fast-talking Bible twisters, I got news for you, Paul says, you are now my enemy. Paul cares for this church, however, and he continues to plead for them to turn from their deception. In chapter 5, 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, begging them to recognize the deceiving influences that they had been tempted to listen to. And finally, in verse 12, he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In this case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, I wish, in verse 12, those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And right here is perhaps the boldest and most profound expression of Paul's disapproval. He wishes that those who would claim another ground for salvation than faith alone would maim themselves and emasculate themselves. And you don't have to use too much of imagination to recognize the context of circumcision and what Paul is wishing upon the enemies of Christ in this regard. Strong, bold expressions of disapproval. So as Paul, this is the context, this is the tone in which Paul refutes man's gospel. Now in each one of these passages that we've referenced a bit from so far, Paul goes further to decry false gospel premises. We won't touch on all these directly in the text, but let me summarize for you. In chapter 1, verse 6 through 11, where Paul is refuting man's gospel, he decries uh, the false gospel premises. He shows that that which is, has its source in worldly men and contradicts the apostolic witness is akin to the false gospel. So he shows that the false gospel is that which has its source in worldliness or worldly men and contradicts the apostolic witness. That is the message of the gospel that Paul has delivered and the apostles who are alongside him in this effort. As he continues in chapter 3, 1 through 6, Paul emphasizes that that which relies on works of the law as a means of salvation, even in part, is part and parcel to man's gospel. So man's gospel is that which relies on works of the law as means of salvation even in part. So he's decrying these false gospel premises. He also says in chapter 4, 8 through 20, in so many words, that man's gospel renders us enslaved to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. So if there's a new and improved teaching that incorporates that which is popular in the philosophies and the worldview and the teachings and the predisposition of the world generally, if it sounds good, if the gospel has been adjusted, manipulated, twisted, uh, changed, modified, softened in any way to make it palatable to uncircumcised ears, as it were, to people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, then you are not preaching the true gospel, but instead you are indulging in the slavery to weak and worthy worth or playing into the enslaving power of weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. And then in 5, 1 through 15, Paul says of, that those who would be justified by the law have fallen away from grace. 
Those who would be justified by the law have fallen away from grace. And this is chapter 5, verse 4, a key verse of the whole book. He says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And then verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So we see here that the gospel hinges on our perceived source of justification. If we are made right with God by the work of Christ alone, then we have become partakers of grace. If we reserve for ourselves even a small part, a claim to this justification by our own works, then we have fallen away from grace. We are outside the category of the gospel at that point. So here we have bold expressions of disapproval, refuted man's gospel. We have the false gospel premises decried, and Paul also discerns the intentions of the false teachers. In chapter 1, 6 through 11, that first passage of refutation, the false teachers are ones who would distort the truth. So they intend to distort the truth. Just by way of application, this is very uh, slick and sounds very attractive. You know, we can look back today at the teaching of the Galatian church and think what idiots they were to be uh, led astray by the teaching that circumcision is a necessary work to save you. I can't imagine that doctrine taking off today. But don't be fooled. There are certain doctrines, there are certain twistings of the Scripture that sound really good to us today because they are modified to cater to the market of culture which sets the values in our sin that, are, uh, that sets them up as priorities uh, among a people who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins. So pay close attention, Paul says. The false teachers, they have the intention to distort the truth. He says, secondly, that they seek to bewitch the saints. Bewitch, to put as though under a spell. This is chapter 3, 1 through 6. To deceive them, to hypnotize them, if you will. <coughs> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So in indulging this teaching that was detrimental to the gospel, they were under the spell, they were letting themselves be hypnotized, as it were, by these wicked forces. So the intentions of the purveyors of the false gospel seek to distort the truth, truth, bewitch the saints, serve themselves. Chapter 4, verse 8 through 20 makes that clear, that they boast in, uh, that, that they uh, find their boast and they find their reward uh, in themselves in, in persuading and influencing people. And finally, they seek to sterilize the cross, if you will, in five 1 through 15, we find this, that they would rob the cross of its power to offend. Verse 11 in chapter 5, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So the cross loses its power and its power to offend if it's something that's optional or it's something that's additional as our hope for salvation. 
the cross of Christ alone is sufficient to save. And in it is the power in the death of Christ on behalf of us for our sins and the justice of God satisfied by the only substitute who could take the payment of uh, the wrath that we deserved on his bruised back and bleeding body, Jesus Christ. That is the only way of salvation. So discern the, attention, the intentions of those who might preach something different than this. They only seek to distort the truth, bewitch the saints, serve themselves, and sterilize the cross, remove from the teaching of the gospel the very crux and heart of the matter. So this is the first category of Galatians. It's a refutation of man's gospel, a refutation of man's best, latest, new, and improved ideas to save himself. It's a sermon against the Tower of Babel in our day, if you will. As we've studied recently, the Tower of Babel represents man's self-styled salvation attempts. We commented last week that in visiting the altar of Abraham, the message of Galatians goes all the way back to the patriarch, wherein at the altar of Abraham, we recognize that no self-styled salvation holds out any hope for man. Neither in the attempt to build a strong city to preserve mankind's future, nor in Abraham and Sarai's uh, best scheming to create for themselves an alternate path to sonship because the promise didn't seem to be working out. No, these things are corruptions. And Paul seeks to refute man's gospel as he addresses, corrects, and exhorts the church in Galatia. Second major category. Galatians categorically features not just a refutation of man's gospel, but assertions of the gospel of Christ. Remember, man's gospel versus the gospel of Christ. These are the two categories he introduces right from the beginning. Now, in asserting the gospel of Christ, he is sensitive to the objection, who are you to have such authority? And so he appeals to an apostolic witness in verse, or chapter 112 through 2.14. So why should I listen to you over these skillful teachers from the surrounding region? Paul answers, verse 12, chapter 1, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it, of course, speaking of the gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, says I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus and then he goes on to say that he sought the corroboration or the confirmation of the apostles in Jerusalem. And they witnessed with him that the revelation of the Son of God that they received firsthand was the same revelation by way of vision and visitation that Paul had received firsthand. So Paul appeals in this way to the apostolic witness. Now, he doesn't just appeal in these ways, revelation and confirmation, but also in confrontation. He goes on to say that even if there is an apostle who would take a posture that would appear to compromise 
that by a grace through faith alone message for Jew and Gentile alike, he needs correction. Even if he was Peter, 2.11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, in this apostolic witness appeal, Paul is saying that the same standard applies to a pagan, one-time pagan Gentile who's now confessed his sin and places faith in Christ in Galatia. The same standard applies for him as it does for every one of the apostles. And their conduct ought to be in step, even as Peter at at this time needed to be corrected, with the truth of the gospel. And what is that gospel? He will go on to positively state it at least four times in his book. But in asserting the gospel of Christ, he wants, to know, he wants the church to know that this message does not come without the underscore, without the highlight, without the megaphone of authority. And this authority comes by way of, again, revelation, confirmation in the plurality of elders, as it were, among the other apostles. So there is a corroboration of witness. There is a unity to the testimony of the apostles. And thirdly, by confrontation. There were times when the Lord used Paul to correct even his peers, his apostolic peers, when their conduct was not in keeping with the gospel. And so now, if Paul has the authority to correct Peter, do you think he, not, do you think he doesn't have the authority to correct a church who's out of step with the truth of the gospel? He most certainly does. And so we see this. Assertions of the gospel of Christ. Paul appeals to apostolic witness. And next he appeals to Abrahamic witness. Hey, Izzy. Give me a glass of water. Thanks. Next, he appeals to Abrahamic witness. And this is uh, in chapter 3, 15 through 4, 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now these words had been preceded by another appeal to Abraham with regard to the ground of his righteousness. And this is in chapter 3 as well. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed." It is amazing. We'll find this soon in our Genesis series. There is a commentary by the narrator that says, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. What was the gospel to Abraham? The same as the gospel to us. As we've been studying in context in Genesis, a significant son would be born who alone would be responsible for our salvation. 
So it was Abraham's faith and this provision of God that was the gospel. And this was the gospel that was preached to him. And it was the same foundationally as the gospel that was revealed in Christ. Though in seed form earlier on in redemptive history, yet blossoming forth in full fulfillment in the work of Jesus, it is the same gospel. So the Abrahamic witness as to the history of God's purposes through redemption testifies to the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Paul goes on to appeal to the Abrahamic witness, citing different purposes. In other words, he distinguishes between the purpose of the law and the purpose of gospel, if you will. The gospel, the work of Jesus Christ saves us. The law condemns us. The law shows us our need for a Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior from the, uh, from the wrath of God that the law declares that we deserve. So promise, purposes, and then finally, we won't get into it today, but analogy. Chapter 4, 21 through 31, Paul appeals to the Abrahamic witness to draw from his life an analogy of the difference between works and faith. Just in short form, uh, faith is believing that God will give your aging wife who is barren a son in her old age. Works is saying, uh, it doesn't look like Sarah's going to get pregnant. Maybe I should take another wife and uh, try it by another way. Try to fulfill God's promise by another way. And so assertions of the gospel of Christ take these forms, the witness of the apostles, the witness of the gospel to Abraham and through Abraham's life. And then thirdly, under assertions of the gospel, it is positively stated. We read the first positive statement of the gospel in chapter 1, 3 through 5. But turn back there just to remind ourselves of it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Saints, church, members of the household of God, right there, that is a positive statement of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the evil age of present, the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father. In this first, in this first positively stated gospel message, Paul emphasizes substitutionary atonement. Christ dies in our place. That is a gospel concept, he affirms. Second positive statement, chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He goes on to expound. And here in this second positive statement of the gospel, Paul emphasizes justification by faith. Substitutionary atonement, chapter 1. Justification by faith, chapter 2. Turn to chapter 3. Third positive statement, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one. 
to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. I wonder if this is the correct passage. Um, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Um, here, oh, let, let's back up just a little bit. Um, this is the passage I was actually looking for. This is in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that's the positive statement I was looking for. Sorry for the uh, wrong reference there. The law is not of faith. Uh, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so here in this positive statement, we have propitiation. Christ absorbing the wrath by becoming, that we deserve by becoming a curse for us. And the fourth positive statement, chapter 4, verse 4. Here we have emphasized adoption and redemption. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So here we see the gospel concepts of adoption and redemption. Through his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman and under the law, Satisfying these terms and conditions for our salvation, we are redeemed from the curse of the law, the law that condemns us to the wages of sin, which were death. And he redeems us unto something, a new family relationship, adoption, and sonship with the Lord. This is evident when the Spirit of the Lord himself inhabits us, is sent into our hearts, and quickens us with this new family identity, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, we're no longer a slave to the law which condemned us. But we are now a son, and as a son, an heir through God. The blessings of Christ are extended to us because his inheritance extends to his offspring, and we are his offspring spiritually through adoption and redemption. So this is the assertion of the gospel of Jesus Christ in four ways stated in the book of Galatians, emphasizing again substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, propitiation, adoption, and redemption. This brings up the last category this morning in our Galatians overview. We're seeking to summarize the message and motive of the book of Galatians. We've spoken that, of Galatians in that category of refutation of man's gospel that Paul hits on a number of times. We've spoken of assertions of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are evident throughout the text. And finally, Paul closes the book by exhorting the church to walk by the Spirit. Exhortations to walk by the Spirit. And this is chapter 5 and 6. Often in Paul's letters, there is this proclamation and application section. And so it is with the book of Galatians. Verse 16 signals this transition when Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Then he goes on to expound the works of the flesh by giving this vice category of sinful conditions of the heart like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. Now these he gives as one side of the coin. These attend the unredeemed heart. But on the other side, what difference does the indwelling spirit make? What is the positive fruit that we can come to expect when we walk by the Spirit, whenever our lives have experienced this fundamental transformation by way of faith in the gospel, he has positively proclaimed, well, you know them as the fruit of the Spirit. Very popular list in 522. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He ties us in again to grace-led living. He says, against such things there is no law. One of the ways that our salvation is expressed by way of fruit is that there is a, that we don't need the law to correct and to conform it as a fearful judgment, promise of judgment over us to manipulate and restrict our otherwise bad behavior because as we continue to be sanctified, our true desire, our conforming desires to the image of Christ seek to express themselves in godliness, taking the shape of actions relationships, and decisions that are in accord with virtues such as, we've just read, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Paul says that you can displace the flesh by endorsing and pursuing, valuing, and walking in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, displaying these kinds of virtues. This is the opposite of the flesh and living according to the world. There is a crucifixion of the flesh that is possible now in Christ. Those who belong to Christ, who are slaves to him, have a new master, now have grace to kill the old man, as it were, to render themselves dead to the old impulses and to continue to show as they grow in Christ more evidence of his spirit by not being conceited, not provoking one another, not envying one another, but walking by the spirit. Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, uh, he gives examples. Those who are spiritual, restoring in gentleness one who is caught in sin. More examples. In 6.2, to test our own work and, and measure our own heart and the things that we pursue against Scripture and then let ourselves be convicted according to that standard. Sharing generously in chapter 6, 6 through 8, or doing good, especially to those of the household of faith in chapter 6, verse 10. So in this final section, Paul gives exhortations to walk by the Spirit. It is this walk of the Spirit, this evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in and through the transforming life of the new believer that will displace the flesh, push it aside to make room for the fruit of the Spirit. And he gives, as we have studied, sample applications of that very thing. What a church who begins to walk by the Spirit and evidences more godliness begins to look like. So here we have, in our summary and overview, the three categories that are featured in Galatians. There's a refutation of the gospel of man, there's an assertion of the gospel of Christ, and there's an exhortation to walk by the Spirit. As Paul brings his letter to a close, there's sort of a bookend device that he is wont to use in his letters. Galatians is no exception. If we go back to Galatians 1, he said in verse 3, as we've already read, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is not a throwaway line, if there was ever a church who needed to realize the value of grace, it was Galatia who was tempted to base their assurance of salvation not on grace that was offered to them through Christ's work, but to augment it with their own works. So Paul invokes this in his invocation, as it were, as he introduces this letter, he pleads for grace and peace. He prays that these things, that these expressions of the gospel would attend the church. They are from God and they are from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in closing, likewise, he says by way of benediction in chapter 6, verse 18, the very last words of the letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And notice just a few aspects of that final phrase, that sentence of benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, the unmerited favor, the essence of the gospel, the ground of our salvation, where our hope resides. Keep that as your focus. Perhaps if a Galatians overview could be summarized in one word, it would be grace. And then he says, following this, that this grace is of our Lord Jesus Christ, pointing them in that one reference to the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who fulfilled every action that was necessary for the positively stated gospel to be a truthful reality. It is Jesus Christ who was the atonement substitute on our behalf. It is faith in this work of Jesus Christ that is the source of justification, as it were. It is His propitiation, the wrath of God that His suffering on Calvary uh, endured that justifies us and washes away our sin and satisfies the righteousness of a holy God. And it is His work dying on behalf of us and incorporating us into His family through the work of Calvary as adopted sons and daughters, redeeming us from our old slavery to sin unto freedom in Christ Jesus that secures for us an inheritance of eternal life and all that His death purchased. So this grace hinges upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, be with your spirit, again, an appeal, reminding them that the third person of the Trinity indwells them in a sense. And by this, they ought to uh, look for, recognize, and to uh, endorse the fruit of the Spirit and see their lives in accordance with the framework of the gospel. And finally, he addresses them as brothers. Not as idiots, not as morons, not as fools, though he's used that strong language before. But in faith that they will heed the proclamation of the gospel and show themselves to be beloved members of the household of faith, he addresses them as brothers and finally says, Amen. So be it. Perhaps in that one word, Amen, Paul signals his own faith that God will preserve this church. Will God preserve his church today? Amen. We should echo with the apostle. Yes, he will. But we should point to the apostle's uh, words to know the means by which he'll do so. God does not preserve his church by arbitrary means. He preserves his church through the proclamation of the unadulterated gospel. He preserves his church when the corrective standard of God's righteousness through Christ's work on Calvary, as celebrated, emphasized, insisted upon, proclaimed boldly, without alteration and error, and done so even in the face of great cost, even unto persecution and death. But 
This is a sufficient means. God will preserve his church. He will preserve his saints, his children, as it were. And they will cling to him by clinging to the grace that their Lord Jesus Christ secured for them on Calvary. It's reference to grace. As we note, it bookends the beginning and the end of Galatia, or the Galatians by invocation and benediction in 1.3 and 6.18. And so I think it is fitting to close this service and our study of Galatians at the Lord's table, which portrays for us the bloody cost of this grace. When we see the elements before us and we partake in them, we are reminded of two things. The bread reminds us of the broken what, children? The bread reminds us of what? The broken body of Jesus. That is exactly right. And when we partake of the cup, what are we reminded of? We are reminded of the? Yes, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. This is the cost of grace. Now, we cannot pay the cost of grace. There is no a sacrifice that we in ourselves can offer to secure and to earn grace. By definition, it wouldn't be grace anymore if we earned it after all. But there was one who earned grace for us. The unmerited favor, that which we do not deserve, the salvation of our Lord that was provided for us was done so at a great and heavy, high and holy cost. It was his body and his blood. So it is appropriate that we close recognizing these things at the Lord's table for us. They portray for us the work of the positively stated gospel that Paul emphasizes to the Galatians. The gospel comes to us through the necessary death of our substitute and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of truth in your holy scriptures. And we thank you for the conviction and the clarity of your apostles who wrote down the very words that bind together your church even today. I pray that you would use these tools to correct us, convict us, to transform us by the renewing of our mind if we should ever stray from the foundation of our hope. And I pray as we approach your table that we would do so today with a new reverence and with an appreciation for the body and blood of Christ that secured for us hope eternal. Thank you, Lord, for these things. I pray that you would plant within each saint in this room. And I pray also that you would call the lost into salvation through the proclamation of your gospel, thoroughly equipping them with the ability to refute the gospel of man by taking Paul's words and applying them. I pray, Lord, that they would love, they would understand, and they would, could articulate, even in simple terms, Lord, the assertion of the positive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your holy scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that by these means, this service today, at your table, the proclamation of your word, the fellowship of the saints, the lifting up your name in song, that we would be better equipped to walk by the Spirit, to die to the flesh, to crucify the old man, and to walk in accordance with the fundamental transformation that has taken place in our souls when we repented of our sin and place faith in Jesus Christ to save us. In his name we pray, amen.